and we're looking forward to a great afternoon. You've already been with us this morning, and we have every reason to believe you're going to be with us now. Father, again, as we open Scripture, we pray that you would open us, and we want to have a better understanding of the importance of Scripture, not just historically. Father, that is very important, but it's not supremely important. Father, what's supremely important is the impact that Scripture has on individual lives, on our lives right here in 2017. Father, we want to be in touch with you by your Spirit. We want to be in touch with you through the Word. And so we pray now that as we open Scripture that you would do that miraculous thing that you do where you take all of the busyness and all of the distractions and all of the things that would steer us away from attentiveness and by your Spirit that you would give us just an oasis in time here where we can think about the privileged position that we occupy to be able to worship in freedom and in spirit and in truth, to come and to assemble, to read the Bible, to have it in our own language. Father, surely we are standing on the shoulders, on the shoulders, on the shoulders of giants. And we pray that today as we assemble and as we think about our heritage, our biblical Christian Protestant heritage, may we have the experience of better understanding who you are and better understanding who we are, and better understanding where we are in the world, not just in terms of geography, but in terms of time. Where we are is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to pick up exactly where we left off uh, this morning, and we spent time taking a look at what are the two words? What were those two words? The battle cry of the Protestant Reformation... Okay, that was super unenthusiastic. The battle, that's not how you say a battle cry. The battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. Okay, that sounded a little more like a battle cry. Well done. And uh, we're, we're calling today's presentation Viva Reformare, right? Which means long live the Reformation. And what I want to try and do today is show you how a church that continues along the trajectory of the Protestant Reformation should look in 2017. Now, this is a very important year because we are celebrating the 500th year anniversary of what is almost, well, certainly, the the most galvanizing and symbolically significant moment in Protestant history, and that was the protest of Luther by nailing his 95 theses to the door at a cathedral in Wittenberg. I've actually just recently stood at that very cathedral. Actually, that cathedral has burned down, but it was subsequently rebuilt, and you can stand right at the very place where Luther would have nailed these theses to the door. Scholars do debate about whether he literally nailed them, but whatever means he got them out, he disseminated these theses, and the point was this. Whether it was posting on a door or posting letters to those that were in surrounding towns and cities and universities, the idea was, I have a complaint, I have a protest, and he was trying to get his protest out, right? He was using the World Wide Web of 1517, right? The printing press, freshly available, and getting the word out. And the word was that he saw a difference between the church and the Bible, Right? The church had, as we've talked about, had become so deformed in that medieval Dark Ages period that Luther, like others that had gone before him, began to look at the Bible and said, something's not, something's not matching up here. Something doesn't smell right. Something doesn't look right. And the medieval church, distancing itself from Scripture, becoming increasingly connected and cozy with the state, was very far removed from the church that Jesus had established. And so Luther posts his protest. 
This takes place in 1517, October 31st, 1517. And we here today, right on the heels of the 500-year anniversary. Now, just a few years later, after Luther began his protest, he believed quite naively that this would be a small matter. He thought that, that he would raise his protest and people in universities and other priests and, and those that were in the various levels of hierarchy within the church, that they would hear what he had to say. He believed this naively. He did not in any way imagine, he could not have possibly imagined that he was actually creating a new church or a new denomination. He certainly didn't envision himself splitting off. He was a devout son of the church. He was a faithful Catholic. And he was committed to the church, but when he posted his theses, and the response was, first of all, the response was fairly muted. Historians uh, report that when Pope Leo X was first notified about Luther's theses, he called it a monkish squabble and paid no attention to it. Oh, that's just a monkish squabble. What Leo X did not consider, though, was that Luther was tapping in. He hit, as it were, a raw nerve. People were, were, were really moved and they were upset and, and there were a number of historical and, and economic and theological factors that were sort of combining. And by the time the church finally started giving it the attention that it sh- certainly deserved, it was already like wildfire, right? And Luther was called in on the carpet shortly after, about a year later, and he was told you need to recant and you need to step down. He refused to do so. He wanted to be persuaded from Scripture. And the situation just increases, just quickly escalates, right? So that in 1521, Luther was, was given the summons to appear in the city of Worms. And he was to go stand before Charles V, Charles V being the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. And he would stand before Charles V, and he was going to make his case. Now, there's a lot of historical dynamics going on here that are quite fascinating, but one of the dynamics that's important for our purposes here is that that Charles was coming to Germany. Luther was not traveling to Rome, right? If Luther had gone to Rome to make his appeal and to make his case, he almost certainly would not have left alive. But something very significant is happening. Frederick of Saxony, who was the elector of the area that Luther was in, in the Wittenberg and its surrounding areas, had said, no, 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 we're not going to send Luther to Rome. We're not going to send Luther a long ways away. He's a credit to our university. He's a credit to Germany. And some of the German people, many of the German people, began to rally around Luther, frankly, as a kind of celebrity. They, they, they saw him as kind of a celebrity when he was making his way to the city of Worms in 1521. He was greeted by masses of people. Remember that the, the, the printing presses knew this idea that, that you would have a celebrity or, or somebody that was famous is a whole new concept. He's going from city to city, town to town as he's making his way to Worms, and people are coming out and supporting him. In fact, when he finally gets to Worms, one of the papal legates, one of the people that had come uh, as the ambassadors for Pope Leo X, who was not there, he wrote a letter back that we have historical record of, and he wrote a letter back to Pope Leo, and he said, the, the place is thronging with people here in the city of Worms. And he said, nine and ten are shouting, Luther, Luther, Luther. And the other one is shouting, death to the Pope. <laughs> so Luther had touched a nerve. And the German people, and especially Frederick of Saxony, were not willing to turn Luther over to what they were sure would be a certain death if he were to travel to Rome. And so he appeared in the city of Worms, and by historical accounts, in fact, this picture is only slightly historically accurate, because, because by historical accounts, there were so many people in the room that the only seated person was Charles V. 
Everybody was just shoulder to shoulder. People wanted to hear what's going to happen. And for you and I, we might look at that and think, well, that's extraordinary. But when you think about it within its historical context, it's more than extraordinary. It's absolutely stupendous. Revolutionary. Completely, totally revolutionary. Because what you have is you have one man, one person, standing on liberty of conscience, freedom of conscience, and the central truth of sola scriptura. He's standing on that over and against this power of church and state that were together. And this is all, you and I today take liberty of conscience and freedom of conscience, we take that for granted, but in those days this was a whole new way of thinking about reality. Hey, wait, 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 wait a minute. Especially when you have the elite ruling class and then the, the ruled, right, the peasant ruled, the, now you have somebody that's standing up to, that's objecting to, that is like, hey, no, I'm not going to go along with that. It was a whole new way of thinking about reality. It would not be an overstatement to say that, that Luther's protest and all that it symbolizes is the door on which the whole, uh, the whole edifice of Western civilization swings. A whole new way of thinking about the nature of reality, that the one can protest injustice, can protest cruelty, can protest oppression, and can protest falsity. And so he stood there in front of Charles V, and all of the, you can sort of see them there, gathered there, his various advisors. Charles V, of course, was a devout son of the church, and they were advising him. He's a heretic. They laid all of his writings out in front of him and said, did you write these things? Yes, I wrote them. Do you recant? Do you revoke these writings? Right? When Luther had begun his protest back in 1517, here he is four years later, he could not have imagined that he would have had an audience, an audience with the emperor of the world. And as he stood there, everyone's waiting, right? Everyone's waiting with bated breath to see what will he say. Will he acquiesce under the pressure? Will he capitulate under the intensity of the moment? In fact, on the first day when he was given opportunity to testify, he actually did struggle. He said, I, I need time to think. And so he, he excused himself. They gave him one day to gather his thoughts. I think that the leaders of the church thought he's, he's going, he's afraid, he's fearful, and he's going to recant. Right? But he just needed a day to gather himself, to think. And he went and he spent time in prayer and he spent time rebuking the devil. And when he stood the next day, he stood with calmness and dignity and poise and the assurance that only Scripture can give. The assurance that only God can give. And as he brought his address to its close, he said these words. And I just want you to try and imagine that you are one of those people in that crowded room, that sweaty, hot, crowded room, and you're listening in to see what will this young monk say? Will he, will he cower? Will he capitulate? Will he fold under the pressure? And as he, brings his, as he brings his speech to its close, he says these words. Since your majesty, your most serene majesty, and your high mightiness require from me a clear, simple, and precise answer, I will give you one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the pope or to the councils because it is clear as the day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages, the passages of Scripture, that I have quoted, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the Word of God, I cannot and will not retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience." I cannot, right? This idea that just because you threaten me, just because I'm fearful, just because you, you can do things to me like you have done to reformers that have gone before, I can't. 
I'm going to stand right here on Sola Scriptura. Don't talk to me about the councils or the popes or the creeds. What does Scripture say? Sola Scriptura. And you can just imagine. You can imagine. When Luther has finished that, right? In fact, those weren't actually his last words. History says that his last words were, Here I stand, I can do no other. May God help me. Here I stand right here as an individual orienting myself in a posture of hostility to this monolithic entity, church and state combined. I mean, if you've, if you've traveled to the Vatican, if you have seen the expansive power and influence and art and architecture and all of that, the, 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 the temerity and the audacity for one young monk who just had begun to read Scripture in the original languages, the Old Testament in the Hebrew, the New Testament in the Greek, he just had this sense that something in this book is more important than all of that. It's more powerful than all of that. And he said, if I'm, I, if I'm forced to make a choice, if you're forcing me to choose between my church or Scripture, I'm going to choose Scripture. And I'm going to stand right here, and I can't do anything else. May God help me. Now, you and I today, we might hear that and we might say, yeah, of course, of course, I would make a similar stand. I believe similarly, but for Luther to do it, he was on the avant-garde of this way of thinking, this way of doing life. He was the bellwether. He was on the cutting edge of thinking. He would say things like this, a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. That's revolutionary language. That's crazy talk. When you have a thousand years of medieval deformation, to stand up and say that a simple layman, a simple cobbler, a simple blacksmith, a simple tradesman with Scripture is to be more believed than all of the popes and all of the councils and all of the creeds without Scripture. That's crazy talk, right? That is talk that will get you killed. And everybody in the room, when Luther would have finished his speech, would have thought, well, this is the end. We are going to smell some roasting human flesh later today or tomorrow. But in fact... To everyone's total astonishment, because he had the strong support of the German public. Remember, 9 out of 10 were screaming, Luther, Luther, Luther. And the other one was saying, death to the Pope. Right? He, he walked out. And I think that everybody was busy picking their, so busy picking their jaws up off the ground that he just walked out. He got on his horse and he started to ride away. He started to ride away. Frederick of Saxony, his protector and the elector of Saxony, knew that if... If the armies, of, if the armies and the, the, the uh, uh, other individuals that were affiliated with the church could get a hold of Luther, it would, be, it would be over for him in a moment. And so Frederick of Saxony wisely kidnapped him, kidnapped him and said to those that were kidnapping him, don't tell me where you're taking him. Don't tell me where you're taking him. And they took him to a castle in Erfurt. I was just actually in that castle recently. It was amazing to be there and think this was the very place. And Luther went to that castle and he began to translate the New Testament and the Old Testament into the German language. Just let that settle into your mind, right? For the first time ever, the words of Scripture, the ancient Hebrew and the ancient Greek words and the ancient Aramaic words were being written in the language of the German people. Luther stayed in the castle there in Erfurt, and he translated. He grew his beard out, and he took on a pseudonym. He, he called himself George. Did you know that? He called himself George, and he would go down into town so that he could buy, you know, things and, and shop in the markets. But he didn't present himself as Martin Luther. He would have been a man. He grew out a big beard, and he went in, and he pretended to be a knight named George. So he could go milling around in town. 
Nicholas Miller, in his book, The Reformation and the Remnant, Nicholas Miller is a world-class historian and also just a wonderful human being. I had the privilege of being with him on the recent Reformation and the Remnant tour that he and I co-led together. And he wrote a really great book called The Reformation and the Remnant. And in that book, he says, Luther's beliefs about Christ, about grace, and about faith stood on the foundation provided by another doctrine, one that allowed him to pierce the medieval facade, the doctrine of the supreme authority of Scripture. The monk's feet were planted firmly on the foundation of sola scriptura, allowing him and others to develop the other sola doctrines, sola fide, only by faith, sola gratia, only by grace, solo Cristo, by faith alone, by grace alone, and by Christ alone. So sola scriptura is the foundational sola on which all of the others rest. Right? We can begin to talk about only by faith and only by grace and only through Christ and only to the glory of God, but we can only have that conversation if we have a starting point, right? What philosophers would call an epistemological starting point, a, a place that you start from. And the church was starting from the position and the place of tradition. They said tradition, apostolic succession, handed down, handed down, centuries upon centuries and years upon years, and all of this accumulating mass of church tradition, that's where authority resides. And Luther had the temerity and others had the audacity to say, no, we're actually going to choose a different epistemological starting point. We're not going to start with the church's authority. We're not going to start with, his, we're not going to start with history and tradition. We're going to start with Scripture. We're going to start with what the Bible says. They actually went back even before the time of the church, and they founded these five solas, only Scripture, only faith, only grace, only Christ, and only to the glory of God. And with each one of those, it was like a, it was like a chisel that was, you know, it had a large, you know, uh, a brick wall that was coming down. And with each one of these, it just removed a critical section of that wall that would eventually begin to tumble down. And the medieval church would be faced with a very difficult situation, a situation that Leo X could have never imagined when he was first alerted to Luther's protest there in 1517. And he said he was dismissive of it. Oh, it's just some little monkish squabble. He could have never imagined, could have never imagined. But I want to tell you something that's very interesting. At the heart of Scripture, right, Scripture is, is not just the Word of God full stop. It is the Word of God full stop, but it's also a beautiful, wonderful, amazing portrait of who God is. It's not just a series of propositional truths, right? Scripture tells a story. It tells, what did I say, everyone? Scripture tells a story, and we actually talked about this just this morning in our Sabbath school class. Scripture tells a story. It moves through a narrative, and the narrative that, the narrative that it moves through is this increasing and, and incremental revelation of God's character of love. At the heart of Scripture is the astounding truth that God is love. Can someone say amen? In fact, if, if time allowed, we could develop how Luther, when, when he was a monk, Prior to 1517, he enrolled, I think, in 1505. So when Luther was a monk, he was the most fastidious. In fact, if Luther were alive today, he would almost certainly be diagnosed with, if not several, at least one or two mental disorders, right? He, 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 had a, he was a very, very, like OCD and, and uh, probably even some f f uh, version of bipolar disorder. I mean, he was absolutely fascinated by and, and frenetic over, and he just couldn't get his mind off of his own sinfulness. And he just he was just driven by his own sinfulness, and, and it was really amazing. He would scrub the floors, and he would do all kinds of things, and he would continually go into confession of sins. His mentor there in the, in the, in the monastery, a man by the name of Johann van Staupitz, 
supposedly said to him on one occasion when Luther had been confessing his sins day after day after day after day after day after day, he finally said to him, look, stop confessing your sins. Go commit a sin that's worth hearing because all this stuff you're confessing is boring. Right? I don't want to hear that you didn't do a good job cleaning the latrines or whatever it might be. Go commit a real sin and then com come and confess it. Well, Luther was so fastidious and so borderline or probably OCD that Johann von Staupitz made a decision that was actually formative, transformative for the shape of history. He said, look, we need to take all of this nervous frenetic energy and we need to channel it somewhere. And he said, you need to go study, the, you need to go get your doctorate in, in the teaching of the Bible. And so he sent him away to Wittenberg to go start studying the Bible. And at first, Luther protested. He said, no, 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 no. I'm not good enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm too much of a sinner. But because when he went into the monastery, he had taken a vow of obedience to his mentors, when Johann van Stalpet said to him, you will go, you will study, and you are going. He had to. And it was there that he began to open up Scripture, and he began to see that God was not this harsh, exacting, judgmental, condemnatory figure, that God in Christ was spreading love, that there was grace, that there was mercy, that, there was, that you could just go straight to God. You didn't have to go through layers upon layers of, of intermediaries and saints, and then finally Mary, and then, and then Jesus, and then you could maybe sneak in a quick word with God. No way! That there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And these great truths such as the just shall live by faith and the amazing love of God began to flood into his mind, not merely as, as academic ideas, but as game-changing, life-altering, emotional landscape-changing realities. He was just like, well, this is the way God is. The whole system was built on a picture and a portrait of God that had Luther fleeing in the opposite direction, Right? Fleeing in fear, fleeing out of judgment, fleeing with a strong sense of condemnation. But when he was exposed to the good news of the gospel, when he was exposed to the great good news that God is love, he began to throw off the shackles of all of these accumulated traditions of medieval tra tradition and the, the, the accumulation of all these ideas, man-made ideas about what God is. Now, with this in mind, as astonishing as this seems... Just 10 years, just 10 years after Luther nailed his theses in Wittenberg, 10 years later in 1527, something fascinating happened. A group of Protestants led by a man named Ulrich Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli was to the Swiss what Luther was to the Germans, right? Zwingli was on his own reformational track, and, and uh, they were fascinatingly tracking very similarly, even though they didn't have a lot of influence in their early years, in fact, no influence in their early years, one to another. And Luther was to the Germans what Zwingli was to the Swiss. And in 1527, a group of about 40 or 50 men, led by Ulrich Zwingli, brought a man by the name of Felix Mons to a river called the Lamat River, which runs right through the heart of Zurich, Switzerland. And they said, okay, Felix, this is your last chance. You can repent right now or you can pay the price. Now, I want to remind you, these are Protestants. These are Protestants. These are Reformers. These are not Roman Catholic bishops and priests and popes. These are Catholic Reformers who are standing ostensibly on sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, sola deo gloria, and solo Cristo. Right? These are Protestants. And they said, Felix, this is your chance. This is your chance to give up this dangerous heresy. And here's an artist's depiction of that very moment. And uh, it's actually quite interesting. 
I was just recently there, took this photo. This is the very spot. There's a plaque. I'm, I'm standing right here on the, the bank of the river, and there's a plaque under my feet that says, this is the place. Felix Mons's name is right there. Now, Ulrich Zwingli's successor, a man by the name of Heinrich Bullinger, reported what happened. When he was given this last opportunity to recant and to repent of this dangerous heresy, Bullinger writes, his mother and brother came to him, came to Felix, and exhorted him to be steadfast. And he persevered in his folly even to the end. His mom comes out, his brother comes out and says, don't, don't give up the faith. Don't turn back. Hold true. When he was bound upon the pole, he was about to be thrown into the river by the executioner. He sang with a loud voice, into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. What was Felix Mons's dangerous heresy that he was teaching? Baptism. Baptism. The idea that you could choose as an adult to be baptized. What's called believer's baptism. These people were so adamant about believer's baptism that, that they came to be called Anabaptists, which today we have the Baptist church that grew out of these radical reformers, these Anabaptists. They said, hey, wait a minute. You're not born into Christianity. You're born again into Christianity. You're not born into faith as an infant and then baptized with a little sprinkling. You are born again into the Christian faith when you, as a believer, as an intelligent man or woman, chooses to follow Jesus, elects to follow Jesus, opts to follow Jesus. And when he refused to recant of this dangerous heresy of believer's baptism, he was tied to a pole. He was rowed out into the middle of the Lamat River, given one last opportunity to repent. And when he refused to repent, they tipped him over the side and they said, you believe in baptism so strongly? Here, you're going to get baptized. And they baptized him. Baptized him. Protestants killing Protestants. So when we talk about this, this, you know, remember the illustration of, you know, you get obese, right? The church had become spiritually obese in this, this dark deformational period, right? And it's not like they're just going to instantaneously arrive at pure apostolic uh, teaching and, and, and authenticity and purity. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It took them a while to come out of it. And one of the things that the church has been historically very slow to let go of is this idea of coercion and manipulation and persecution. If you don't agree with me, I will make you agree with me. And if you don't, you better watch out. You'd better watch out. So today we're going to talk about Viva Reformare. And I'm going to look at four simple points as we do this. Four simple points. The first one we're going to talk about is the Constantinian shift, the post-Constantinian world. After Constantine the Great converted to Christianity, what, what happened to Christianity in the wake of that event? Okay? Number two, we're going to talk about the religion of human nature. Number three, control versus freedom. And number four, right at the close, I'll give you ten points as to why, uh, ten points as to how we can be a part of a movement, a Bible-based reformational movement, and not just a mere denomination. Okay? So, viva reformare. Here we go. First of all, the shape of church history, which I've been sort of painting for you with my hands here. The church is formed. In the wake of the resurrection of Jesus, apostolic purity, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, deformed through the medieval period, gets so far removed from Scripture that these cries come, uh, Huss and Wycliffe and, and Luther and Tyndale and others, Wingley and others, and so the church begins to slowly, incrementally climb its way out over the ensuing centuries. That incremental climbing out of that deep medieval pit 
leads eventually to restoration. But there are some historians that say, you know what, that's altogether too complicated. There's no need to talk about four chapters in church history, formation, deformation, reformation, restoration. In fact, you can divide church history up into two parts. You can tell the whole story of the church in two chapters. Not four. You don't need four, David. You just need two. And they, they divide it up like this. They say what you have is pre-Constantinian Christianity and post-Constantinian Christianity. Right? You have Christianity before the conversion of Constantine, right? The, the period that's called the Antonicene period or the period before the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. And then you have the rest. From, from after the Council of Nicaea, after the conversion of Constantine, all the way down to the present. Right down to 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. They say that is the shape of church history. And this is referred to as the Constantinian shift. And I want to talk to you about that. Since Constantine, the church has had a confused but often cozy relationship with who? With the state. We talked about how did the church go through that radical or that deformational dip. And the answer is distancing itself from Scripture by embracing traditions, number one, the accretion and accumulation of traditions. And the other one, a big one, is an increasingly cozy relationship with the state. Just a quick word on that. The reason that the church had to rely on the state is that because it was departing from Scripture, it was losing the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to say that again. The reason that the Christian church had to rely on the power of the state is that in departing from Scripture, they were losing the power of the Holy Spirit, and they needed the power of the state to do externally what the power of the Spirit was not doing internally in the lives of believers because they weren't connected to God through, through Scripture and Christ. Amen? Powerful. So this is what the Constantinian shift looks like. Okay, you're, 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 you're shifting, right, from the pre to the post world, from sort of early, nascent, primitive Christianity to the post-Constantinian world, and it looks like this, from church to Christendom, Christendom being a combination of Christianity and kingdom, right? So that's a church, that's a voluntary organization that you elect to be a part of. Christendom is when you are born into the kingdom of Christianity, Number two, from persecuted prior to the conversion of Constantine to persecutor, from being a small, politically insignificant, persecuted minority to being the political powerful and persecuting majority, from conversion to coercion. Number four, from the Spirit's power, we mentioned this a moment ago, to the state's power. Number five, from believer's baptism to infant baptism, or from, yeah, from believer's baptism to infant baptism. That was the sin of Felix Mons. And finally, number six, from convinced about the truth of Scripture and the truth of Jesus and His saving grace and goodness to being a citizen of Christendom. So the transition, all of this is taking place from pre to post-Constantinian. And a lot of church historians say, you don't need four chapters. You don't need four chapters. You can, tell the, you can tell the story of the whole church in two events, the resurrection and the conversion of Constantine. The resurrection of Jesus in AD 31 and the conversion of Constantine in AD 312, about 300 years later. And that's the story of church history. Case closed. Right? Close the books. That's what we're dealing with. So that's what we're talking about when we discuss the Constantinian shift. And I'm going to show you how the Constantinian shift is actually something that's rooted in human nature. I want to talk to you about the religion of human nature. Okay, I want to go to a passage in Scripture in, I'm going to look at just two quick passages, one in Luke 9, another one in Matthew, I think it's 25, and then we're going to make some observations from it, and then we're going to just take a quick survey of Luke chapter 9. Okay, so I need you to put your thinking caps on with me here. Okay, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. Now, it came to pass 
When the time had come for him to be received up, this is Jesus, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the, of the Samaritans. Tell me about the relationship between Jewish people and the Samaritan people in the days of Jesus. Positive or not so positive? Yeah, antagonistic, hostile, adversarial. Okay, so Jesus is going to go here through a city of the Samaritans uh, to prepare for him. But they did not receive him. The Samaritans did not receive Jesus because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and to consume them just as Elijah did? Hey, hey, we know how to solve this problem, Jesus. We know the Old Testament, and these people that have rejected you, these people that have not received you, do you want us to call down fire, and we'll burn all of these people up? Right? They just imagined in their mind's eye that Jesus would be like, you know, that's a great idea. The hotter, the better. Right? But notice what Jesus says. But he turned and rebuked them, and he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. You want to burn up people for rejecting me. You want to destroy people, to kill people, to hurt people for rejecting me. He said, you don't know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to what? To, can the church say amen? Not to destroy, but to save. Now, here's another passage, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to hold these two passages here in tension, then we're going to go back and look at the sweep of Luke 9. I want you to see this. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus is about to be arrested. And this this disciple, enthusiastic, militaristic disciple, says, I know just what to do. Pulls out his sword and is ready to engage in combat to protect the Prince of Peace, Jesus. Cut off the guy's ear. Wasn't a very good swordsman. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will what? Will perish by the sword. Jesus says there's an axiomatic logic here. If you take the sword out to kill, the sword, like a mirror, will reflect back upon you. The sword is not a door that only goes one way. It goes both ways. If you walk through it in my name, then it can walk right back through. And you take the sword out to kill someone, the sword will kill you. And then he says, do you not think that I could pray now to my father and he would provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus says, do you not think that a violent deliverance is available to me? There is a violent deliverance available to me right now, but I'm not taking it, right? Because I didn't come to establish the stronger, more violent God, the better, stronger, mightier way of doing things. Put your sword in its place. Now, with that in mind, that's one instance. And I want to show you how we get there. How do we get there in Luke 9? That's the very end of Luke 9. So just imagine with me here, we're moving through Luke 9. I'm going to just quickly walk you through this. The very end event, the the eighth episode in this section of Luke that we're going to be looking at here is the Samaritan village, where where they reject Jesus and, and the disciples, James and John, are like, hey, we'll just call down fire and destroy these people. But I want you to see how they get there. This is very interesting. For those of you that are Bible students, you'll be familiar with some of these stories. If you're not a Bible student, that's all right. Just listen in, and you can go back and read it on your own and and see the very sequence that gets us to that place, okay? So beginning in verses 21 and 22, Jesus foretells his death, which is like, it's a totally earth-shaking moment for a Messiah to be saying, I'm going to die. Because the very definition of a Messiah, the very thing that the Messiah was coming to do was not to be killed, but to himself kill others, to kill the pagan nations, to kill the Romans, to liberate and finally exalt the Jewish nation. So when a Messiah figure starts talking about being killed, you know he's not a Messiah. 
It's like talking about which one of the sides of the circle is the longest side. You're like, well, 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 but a circle doesn't have sides. Yeah, but which one is the longest? I think we're talking two different languages here. You're talking about maybe a square or a rectangle or some other geometrical shape. shape. I'm talking about a circle. Right? There's no such thing as a square circle. If you have four sides and four right angles that are, you know, four sides that are equal and four right angles, you have a square. If you have a geometrical object or a geometrical figure with a single point and every point on the line is equidistant from the center point, you're talking about a circle. They're mutually exclusive. You're either talking about a circle or you're talking about a square. You're either talking about somebody who gets killed or you're talking about a Messiah. But you're not talking about a Messiah that gets killed. So Jesus starts telling his disciples, hey, this is going to be hard for you guys to hear. This is going to be fresh news. I got headline breaking news for you here. Messiah is going to be killed. He then, number two, invites them to be ready to be killed, which is hardly a, a particular, that's not a particularly inviting invitation. You have to understand this in, in its historical context. In many of these cities in the, in the Roman Empire, crosses were set up outside of those cities to scare you from ever trying to resist or fight against this imperial power of Rome, right? So, so the cross was something today we venerate it and we, you know, put, you know, pictures of it and all that. It's quite, it means it's quite nice and virtuous. In, in that time, the cross was horrific. It was a symbol of Roman oppression and cruelty. And so when Jesus says to his disciples, it's like, take up your cross and follow me. The people are like, what on earth is this Messiah talking about? Number three, Jesus then goes up on the mountain and this experience happens called the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is seen standing with Moses and Elijah. It's as if God is saying and Jesus is saying, look, the things I've just said don't square with what you think a Messiah is and what a Messiah will do. So here's this like, this this proof positive, this miraculous proof positive that Jesus is in fact who he claims to be, right? Then verse 4, Jesus comes down from the mountain and heals a boy. This is how God acts. This is how God behaves. This is what God does. He heals a boy. Number 5, Jesus again says, fellas, I know you just saw me glorified on the mountain. Trust me on this. Messiah is going to go and Messiah is going to be killed. Number 6, Jesus then says, Who among you is the greatest? He's now getting at the heart of the religion of human nature. Who among you is the greatest? Who's the biggest? Who's the best? Who's the strongest? Who's the smartest? Because they were disputing among themselves about who would be the greatest. When they saw him so bright and shiny and incandescent, they were like, man, I want a seat on the right and I want a seat on the left. And they began to argue among themselves. Number seven, the disciples forbid a preacher healing in Jesus' name. I'm going to read you that text in just a moment. And then finally, a Samaritan village rejects Jesus and the disciples offer to bring down fire. If you follow the flow of Luke 9, what the, what the author of the Gospel of Luke is clearly trying to do is lead you to a place where you see organizationally and in a literary context the absurdity of what they're saying. Jesus is like, I'm going to die you can take up your cross and you can come and die and I'm going to die. And he comes down and, he's he- and then, he's, then he's rejected by a city of the Samaritans. And the immediate response of the disciples who's arguing who's the best, who's the most, who's the greatest is, hey, do you want us to call down fire and kill these people? Now watch this. Absolutely amazing. Luke chapter 9 verse 46. Let's read this. Then a dispute aro- arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart took a little child and set him by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is, what? Least among you will be the greatest. 
Now, John answered and said, Master, oh, we got, a, we got a story to tell you. John speaks up. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We were out running the errands of the Messiah, and we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. So, so, so you got to kind of fill the blanks in here a little bit. So they're out, and they're teaching, and they're preaching, and they're healing, and they see another guy over there that they don't recognize. He's teaching, and he's preaching, and he's healing in the name of Jesus. And they're like, hey, hey, you, you, you. You over there teaching and preaching and healing in the name of Jesus. You want to come with us? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm going this way. I'm, I'm going another way. But thanks for the offer. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, then. I can't say what I want to say right now. <laughs> then beep, 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 right? They tell him off. That's what John is reporting this story to Jesus. We saw a guy who was teaching and preaching and healing in your name, and we offered him to come with us, and he said no, so we told him off. Right? And, and John is clearly telling the story, expecting a pat on the back, a sock on the arm. Good on you, mate. I hope you told him off well. Good for you. Way to tell him off. Right? Now watch this. But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is what? Is what? on our side. John said, this is another translation, C-E-V, Master, we saw a man using your name to force demons out of people, but we tried to stop him, watch this, because he isn't one of us. We tried to stop him. We tried to shut him up. We tried to put an end to his ministry because he wasn't one of us. Now, I want you to think about this. The disciples, James and John, they see just two options. Right? They see just two options. Number one, you are with us and Jesus. Or number two, you are not with us and Jesus. Right? That's, it's just as plain as the noonday sun. That, those are the options. We saw a guy healing and preaching in your name. We invited him to come. He wouldn't come with us and you, Jesus. So we told him off. They see only two options. Either you're with us and Jesus or you are not with us and Jesus. But Jesus introduces a totally radical third option. He says, no, 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 no. He is with me, but he's not with you. <laughs> Amen? Isn't that what he said? Don't tell him off. He that is not against us is with us. He that is not against me is with me. The disciples could only see this really binary version of reality. Either you're with me and Jesus, or you are not with me and Jesus. And Jesus says there is a third option here. There is another option here, and that is that they're not with you, but they're still with me. And I want to tell you, friends, the religion of human nature is to color everybody outside of the lines. It doesn't see things just like we see it. That's what we want to do on really big, important issues and even on really small issues, right? The, the religion of human nature is really not even about religion. It's about human nature. It's about taking people and, and putting them into camps, them and us, right? And if you believe broadly or, or at least in some approximation of what I believe, then you can be with me and Jesus. Because we think that because I've got such a great apprehension of what it means to be with Jesus, that if you're with me, then you're also with Jesus. But what if there's somebody over there that's teaching and preaching and healing and doing something else in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, but just doesn't come along with you? with your church, with your denomination, with your perspective, with your interpretation, with your opinion. Does that mean that they're not with Jesus? Apparently not. Apparently there's another option here. I want to talk now about control versus freedom. This transitions really smoothly into this point about control versus freedom. 
Carlos Ayer, back to his book on Reformation, says this, describing the Inquisition. The Inquisition was not born out of the Protestant Reformation, but the volume was turned up in response to the Protestant Reformation. Ayer says, the Inquisition is that essential agent of control, agent of control in the Catholic Church. The Inquisition became an important aspect of the Catholic Reformation. Among Protestants, the institution assumed a monstrous and menacing character as the embodiment of all that was wrong with the Church of Rome. But when all is said and done, like its Protestant counterparts, the Inquisition did suppress and punish. Now, notice error is correct here. Like its Protestant counterparts, that's why we spent a little time talking about Ulrich Zwingli throwing Felix Mons into the river. Because this was not something that was uniquely or exclusively or proprietarily Catholic to punish somebody else who doesn't see something just the way you see it. That's what they wanted to do in the Samaritan village. Oh, these guys didn't receive Jesus, so we'll burn them up. That's what they wanted to do with this guy. That's the whole flow of Luke 9, to help you see the absurdity of trying to kill or otherwise forbid people who are not just exactly like you are. Fascinating point here. Okay? So so in response to the Protestant Reformation, the, the Roman church had an option. They could respond and say, they could get on their knees and say, you know what, these are legitimate complaints. Huss and Zwingli and Luther and Tyndale and Wycliffe and others have raised legitimate points and we need to respond. We need to... But in fact, what happened, they convened the Council of Trent over a period of about 20 years beginning in 1545. And when they, con- when they convened the Council of Trent, they doubled down on tradition. They doubled down on church hierarchy. And they, they doubled down. They basically hardened themselves in their ecclesiastical traditions and perspectives. They doubled down. They said, we're not backing off. And they, they launched what is sometimes called a counter-reformation. Right? So the Protestant Reformation begins to do its work. And now the church, in response to that, the medieval church launches a reformation to counter the reformation. And a part of that reformation to counter the reformation was this tool of control that Eric calls the tool of control is what Eric calls it, the Inquisition. This monstering, monstrous and menacing character as, as the embodiment of all that was wrong with the church of Rome. But when all is said and done like its Protestant counterparts... The Inquisition did suppress and punish as well as stifle free expression. Zero tolerance for freedom of expression was the rule rather than the exception. Throughout Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries, the same could be said for cruelty, which all too often trumped compassion. We may wish, says Eyre, the Catholic historian, that it had been different, but unfortunately wishful thinking is irrelevant in history. The point I want to make here is that this idea that I will punish you or persecute you for not believing what I believe or thinking how I think or saying what I say, that's not something that's proprietarily Catholic. It it belongs to Catholics and Protestants and Muslims and Hindus. It belongs to human beings. Because my sense of rightness gives me some sense in which I'm not just wiser than you, smarter than you, more enlightened than you, more informed than you. At some level, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. We'll get to that in just a second. So in general, the Reformation emphasized the gospel and freedom, while the Catholic response with the Council of Trent between 1545 and 1563 emphasized the church and control. And so you have these, these two, what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object, right? The gospel begins to be preached. And no, they didn't get it right the first time. 
Zwingli and Luther and others were themselves still spiritually obese because they were just beginning to go to the gym. They were just beginning to incrementally come out of thick anti-Christian darkness, as one author has called it. Right? And so, so when they find a Felix Mons who's advocating something that they regard as dangerous, an Anabaptist with this dangerous heresy of believer's baptism, which would make probably all of us in this room dangerous heretics, well, what do you do with dangerous heretics? You punish them, you persecute them, and if need be, you kill them. Because that's what you do when people don't see the truth. That's what, that's what they were trying to do there in the garden. You don't want to see the truth? I'll cut your head off. Oh, you don't want to see the truth? We'll call down fire. Oh, you don't want to come with us and believe that? I'll tell you off. I'll tell you off. Carlos Aragon, such was the essence of Catholic reform aimed at the laity as summed up in a single Tridentine decree. That means from the Council of Trent. And just let this seep into you here. Worship uniformly, instruct thoroughly, and police intensely. That's the response. We're going to all worship exactly the same We're going to instruct thoroughly on the truth of all of our traditions and these layers upon layers of tradition and the accumulation of of ecclesiastical and and, uh, uh, cultural tradition. And then we're going to police intensely. And if we find that any of you are out of line, you will be summarily dealt with. I don't know how that settles with you, but the idea of, I don't mind the middle one, instruct thoroughly. I love to instruct thoroughly in Scripture. Right? But the idea that we're going to worship uniformly, everybody has to worship exactly the same, we're going to instruct thoroughly, and then police intensely. How does that sit with you? You feel good about that? You want your local church policing you intensely? You want your local pastor policing you intensely? The local elder policing you intensely? That's what happens when, you, when you've been fed a steady diet of church and state. You begin to think that the way... The way to get the truth out there is we just have to make people do it, whether it's by threat of fire or threat of sword or threat of telling off or threat of drowning in the river. We're going to make people do this. But the the presentation today is viva reformare. What happens if you continue to go to the gym? What happens if you continue to lose weight? What happens? You're not going to be this job of the hut type figure forever. You're going to begin to make changes. And as those changes begin to be made, some really amazing things are going to happen. The gospel is not just going to become an idea. It's not just going to become a concept. It's going to become the way we treat people. And not just people that agree with us. Man, it's really easy to to treat people that agree with us well. Didn't Jesus say that? He's like, you guys, you're just like the scribes and the Pharisees. The people that greet you in the markets, you greet them back. And the people that would invite you for dinner, you invite them for dinner. But what about the people that you don't see eye to eye with? What about the people that you are totally stand in opposition to on some major matter? So that's what we're going to close on, movement or mere denomination. A few months ago in this very church, these two beautiful people stood here. Raise your hands if you remember Jerry and Dinica. They stood in this very church and gave such a powerful testimony. And I'll never forget how part of that testimony went. It went something like this. They, they were telling this beautiful story and the church was saying amen to the degree that this church says amen. And then at one point they said, we are not members of your community of faith. We're members of a different church. We're members of a different denomination. But we love the gospel preaching that comes from Pastor David and Light Bearers. And I was so happy. I was so proud. I wanted to tell you guys this for months. I was so proud of my local community because the, you guys, you might not even remember this. You said amen, which was astonishing enough, and then you clapped. You extended the hand of Christian fellowship and Christian grace. 
These are people that came into our community of faith who said, listen, we've been listening to, I, I, I met them. It's quite a fascinating story. I was down preaching in Tasmania. I'm preaching in Tasmania at a Seventh-day Adventist camp meeting. And I'll never forget, Jerry and Dinica came up to me after one of the meetings. They said, hey, can we, can we speak to you? Hushed tones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's up? Hey, uh, we're not Seventh-day Adventists. Is it okay if we're here? I was like, security! Security! said, of course, and, and they ended up taking Violetta out and, and Violetta and I out, and we had this amazing lunch, and we spent time together, and they told us their story of how they were raised in a Dutch Reformed background and how she came to be a believer. The story is amazing, and, and you've heard it just recently in this very church, and if you haven't heard it, you can go find it on the YouTube channel. It's, it's on there, Jerry and Dinica DePute's testimony, and, and how they were just coming, you know, again, all of us in our own ways are retracing this same historical schematic. We're all coming incrementally and increasingly to Jesus and one day they turned on the Hope Channel and they heard this preaching and they saw a program called Table Talk. Have you ever heard of Table Talk? And, and, they, and they, they, wrote out, they wrote that down and they sent in a, a little card and somebody showed up at their door and they got invited to camp meeting and they showed up but they weren't Seventh-day Adventists. But you know what? They're amazing followers of Jesus. They love God so much. In fact, they, in their own local church, they're, they're members of a local Baptist church. They're like, yeah, we go to the Baptist church, but we still keep Sabbath. We keep Sabbath. And in our small groups, we use the TruthLink Bible study guys and Table Talk. That's what we use for our small group resources. And there they are. I put that, I put that in there. I took them to Sozo. And they're even, they're becoming vegetarians. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Friends, I love this. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Let me translate that for you. For everybody. The, the message is for everybody. The gospel is for everybody. The truth is for everybody. The Bible is for everybody. It's not just for the clergy. It's not just for the people that look like you, talk like you, think like you, act like you, and worship like you. The gospel, the good news, is bigger than you and I. God is not going to be, woo, and amen. God, the, God is not going to be put in a box. He's bigger than that. And we need to be bigger than that. We don't need to be burning up villages of the Samaritans because they don't go along with what we say. Let God work God's work in God's own time. Let God do what only God can do. Amen? amen. Let's hear the words of Jesus. You know, actually, there's a third option here. They might not be with you, but they're with me. Every nation, tribe, I love this. One of my favorite things about being a Seventh-day Adventist is that Seventh-day Adventists are very broad-minded in their inclusivity. And one of my favorite authors, Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, just speaks volumes about this inclusivity. According to this scripture, many of God's people must still be in end-time Babylon. And in what religious bodies are the greater part of the followers of Christ now to be found? Where are the followers of Jesus to be found? Oh, I'm so happy that, that this, this member of my church, this founder of my church doesn't say, well, in our church, because that's really the only place they are found. No, notice what she says. Without doubt, in the various churches professing the Protestant faith, where are the people of God? They're out there. Where are the majority? They're out there. The majority of the people of God are out there. Not this individual, isolationist, us-only group. It's, no, all the people, all the true people are with us. And if they're not with us, they're sure on their way here. She's like, no, no, they're, they're out there. Without doubt, the majority are there. And look at this one. 
Among the Catholics, there are many who are most conscientious Christians and who walk in all the light that shines upon them, and God will work in their behalf. So it's not just that they're in the Protestant churches. Apparently, they're also, God is working in the Catholic church too. Apparently, God has people even there. Ah, that's one of my favorite things about being a Seventh-day Adventist is this not exclusivity, but this radical inclusivity. Yes, Scripture, but everybody and every denomination is on their own journey with Scripture. You're on your own journey with Scripture. Why should anybody else be different? Amen? I'm on a journey. You're on a journey. This church is on a journey. Why shouldn't any other? Why should we color other churches outside of the lines? If we're all headed with Scripture toward Jesus, God will sort it out in His own way. I love this. There are many among the Catholics who live up to the light far better than many who claim to believe Bible truth. A great number will be saved from among the Catholics. Can you say amen? I'm so thrilled that one of the founders of the church that I'm personally a member of was just radical in her inclusivity about the fact that salvation is not something that is proprietarily, uniquely our denominations to keep and to dispense. It's God's to dispense. And the Bible says that he dispenses it freely. For God so loved the world. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and cling to the faith and faithfulness of Jesus. And friends, if you're in that number, your denominational affiliation might be the same as mine or it might be different than mine. Right? But if you're on a journey with Scripture toward Jesus and I'm on a journey with Scripture toward Jesus, God is going to sort it out. Movement or mere denomination, I leave you with these 10 points. Number one, how do we do that? How do we transition from a mere denomination to a movement? Number one, we believe the best about them. Number two, we don't regard others according to the flesh. Oh, they're Samaritans, right? Be very careful who you're quick to color outside of the lines. Jesus did the fullest, gave the fullest revelation of who he was to a Samaritan woman sitting at the well in John chapter 4. Number three, focus on God's faithfulness in Christ. If God is big enough to save you, if God is big enough to pull you out of the miry pit, God is big enough to save somebody else and pull them out of the miry pit. Focus on God's faithfulness. Number four, build bridges, not walls. I'll tell you something. When it comes to religion and religious controversy, the walls build themselves. Trust me on that. You just start having conversations. The walls build themselves. So work on building bridges and let the walls take care of themselves. I'm not talking about compromising on scriptural truth. I'm the last person you would, ex I'm the last person that would advocate compromising scriptural truth so that we can all be unified. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm saying is, is that if you stand on scripture and somebody else stands on scripture and you see things slightly differently, the walls will build themselves. So what we need to work on is what are the bridges between us? What are the points of commonality? And I could spend a long time showing you how Jesus and Paul and the other New Testament believers establish points of commonality and let the points of dissimilarity and, and hostility establish themselves. So number four, bridges, not walls. Number five, a posture of inclusivity, not exclusivity. I've done my best to paint that for you here today. Number six, less institutionalism, more solid biblical teaching and passionate biblical proclamation. Can somebody say amen? Passionate, sweaty proclamation. Seven, major in the majors, minor in the minors. This is one of the things that church members struggle with, right? We've got to keep the big picture big and the little picture little, right? You've got to keep Jesus really big and you've got to keep all the rest as details. It's not unimportant details. Nothing in Scripture is unimportant, but there's the big picture and the little picture. Are we together? Major in the majors, minor in the minors. Jesus said of the religious leaders in his day, you guys strain at gnats and swallow camels. You're majoring in minors and minoring in majors. 
He says, you pay tithe of mint and cumin and anise, and you ought to have done that. But you left the other stuff undone, you know, stuff like love and justice and mercy. Number eight, resist all forms of spiritual and religious coercion and manipulation. Can somebody say amen? Whether it's tying somebody to a pole and chucking them in a river or threatening to or even intimating or hinting to someone else that because they don't believe what you believe or see things how you see that they're not in a right relationship with God or that they're not saved. All forms of religious manipulation and coercion we must jettison. Last two, think this way. Think I want to be a member of a biblical, end-time, welcoming, reformational movement not a mere cloistered and exclusive denominationalism. Amen? Every one of those words is purposefully chosen. Biblical, yes. End time, yes, we're living at the end of time. Welcoming, it means welcome. You're welcome, please come. Reformational, sola scriptura. We, we don't want to be isolationist and proprietary and parochial. We want to have our arms open wide. Can the church say amen? Come on. And then number 10, in case you forget everything else that I said in this presentation, just remember this part. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Amen? If you forget everything else, just remember that. Because, friends, if Jesus is for everyone, then the church should be for everyone. The church isn't just for people like me and people like you. The church and the message of the church and the message of the gospel is for the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the message of the gospel is for the world. And right now, we just pause to respond in our hearts, we respond. I'm going to raise my hand. Anybody else wants to raise their hand? Just raise your hand to heaven and say, Lord, I need to let this seep into me, this viva reformare. Long live the Reformation. May the Reformation not be a static historical entity, but may it continue to grow and to go. And Father, what does the Reformation look like here in 2017, 2018, and beyond? What does the Reformation look like? Father, it needs to look welcoming. It needs to look biblically based. It needs to look end time. It needs to look inclusive. How do we get more people access to the message? And Father, forgive us where we have become parochial and small-minded in our thinking, where we have majored in the minors and minored in the majors. Oh, Father, help us to be not just aware of the historical Reformation, but to be participating in the today Reformation. That me today, I need reformation. I need transformation. I need restoration. And Father, forgive me where I have looked with contempt or hatred or scorn upon those that are not like me, who don't see like me, think like me, act like me, talk like me, dress like me. Father, help me to be bigger than that. Help me to see through the eyes of Jesus when he said to his disciples, lift up your eyes. You don't see what I see. The fields are white for the harvest. And we pray all of this in the mighty, saving, powerful name of Jesus. Long live the Reformation. Let everyone say, Amen. 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 You survived. Okay, now let me just say a couple other quick things. Then I got to go get out of these sweaty clothes. I'm about ready to die. Um, so here's the deal we, we did two today, and I think.